Torah studies. This is Torah studies for the Torah portion of Vayechi. It's the last portion in the book of Genesis, in the book of Bereshis. This is our 12th class on the book of Genesis. There are 12 Torah portions in Bereshis, and this is 12 out of 12. Next week, don't worry, we're back with more Torah studies as we begin the next book, the book of Exodus. And as we begin the next book, on a technical note, we are going to have a new Torah studies book, which you can purchase on Amazon. I may share the link with you by the end of tonight's class. I will share it in the chat. Okay, so I, I muted everybody, but don't forget at any point in time, you can unmute, jump in, ask a question, share a comment, etc. We'd like to keep this as much of a dialogue as possible. So in this final Torah portion, the Torah portion is called Vayechi. And Vayechi means, and he lived. Vayechi Yaakov and Jacob lived. And the verse, the opening verse of the Torah portion continues that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. It's interesting that the name of the portion is a word that essentially means life. And he lived, it's, it's about life. When in fact the portion discusses the preparations and the passing of our forefather Jacob. When I say preparations, I mean the preparations that Jacob did before his passing and his passing. The whole Torah portion, from the beginning to the end, pretty much, centers around the passing of our forefather Jacob. And yet, the parasha is called Vayechi. And he lived. And this is not a new thing because we've discussed this many times, but I need to mention it because it's so powerful and it's so important. Our sages say in the Talmud, Yaakov Avinu Lo Mes, or Lo Met, that Jacob, our father, our forefather, did not die. And the ta- Listen to the bold statement. Jacob did not die. And what are you thinking? <laughs> what do you mean he didn't die? We read about, we read about it in this week's Torah portion. He died. He passed away. The Talmud asks, was it for nothing that they eulogized him? Was it for nothing that they embalmed him and buried him? What do you mean he didn't die? What did they do with the body if he didn't die? The Talmud answers, no, you're misunderstanding what it means that he didn't die. The Talmud says, Mazaro b'chayim, afu b'chayim. As long as his children are alive, he is alive. That's what the Talmud says. That as long as Jacob's children are alive, Jacob continues to live. And that's why the Talmud says, Yaakov avinu lo met, that Jacob didn't die. Why? Because we're still here. If we're still here, Jacob is still alive. And so here's what this means. Here's what this means. If we want Jacob to live, if we want this entire edifice to keep on going, it's up to us. As we are alive Jewishly, Jacob is alive, Judaism is alive, Am Yisrael Chai, that's where life is. If at any point over the last 3,600 years, we would have collectively thrown in the towel Jacob would not be alive. But Jacob is alive. 
Mazaro Bachaim Afu Bachaim, as his children live, Zaro, as his children live, he too lives. It's an incredible privilege and it's an incredible responsibility and it speaks to the nature of life. This is a deeper meaning of the name of the Torah portion. As we've discussed many times, the Rebbe spoke endless, countless hours, endlessly, countless hours about the names of the Parshiot. The name of a Torah portion, the way it's known, right? The way, the way we know the, the Torah portions, the name of the portion is incredibly significant. Not just the content, but the name. So the fact that the portion is called Vayichi, and he lived, even though he dies in this week's Torah portion, as the Talmud tells us, is incredibly significant. So that's an opening message about the nature of life and really the nature of the responsibility of children and other descendants to keep the legacy of our parents, our fathers, our grandfathers alive. It's up to us to keep their life, to keep their life burning strong. Jacob, shortly before his passing, gathers his children. We're going to read about this inside. We have the text. We're going to read it. We're going to analyze it. We have a whole class set up for this. Shortly before his passing, Jacob gathers his children, and he wishes to tell them a secret, a secret that had not been revealed to any other human being on planet Earth. The truth is a secret that you and I are not even aware of to this very day. Jacob wished to reveal a secret. His ability to do so was taken away at the last moment. Tonight we're going to explore what the secret was, why it was taken away from him, this opportunity to share the secret, and what it means for us today. But before we do that, let's speak about Rambam, Maimonides. Maimonides lived about 800 plus years ago. eight to 900 years ago. Maimonides, I probably don't need to give his, his bio, but just in case, Maimonides, of course, was the great Jewish philosopher, scholar, legal expert, halachist, codifier of Jewish law. He put together the, a work of Jewish law that is unparalleled, unparalleled. It's not called the Code of Jewish Law. That came later. He wrote something called, the, huh, sorry? Court Physician. He was a court physician as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's speak about his, um, his contribution to Jewish law for a moment. He wrote the Mishnah Torah, we've spoken about this before, but he wrote the Mishnah Torah, which was, and still is today, the only compilation of Jewish law that's organized and that contains Kol HaTorah Kula, the entire, the entire um, all, all of Torah and all 613 mitzvot. There is no other book of Jewish law that organizes the entirety of of Torah, because the subsequent codes of Jewish law that we study, Shulchan Aruch, they only contain the laws that are possible to do without the temple. They only contain what we would call exile practical law. But Rambam, he covered everything. So Rambam, Maimonides, is unparalleled in his scholarship. What he did was incredible. He was also, as my mother mentioned, a court physician. He was an astronomer. He was a brilliant scientific mind as well. Maimonides, amongst his contributions, Maimonides penned what he called the 13 principles 
of faith. Yur Gimel Ikrim, the 13 foundational ideas of Judaism. If somebody asks you so, tell me about Judaism. What's Judaism about? Well, Maimonides did a great job of taking the 13, foundation, 13 foundations of Judaism and compiling them as, a, uh, as, as, as something to study, something to learn. In fact, there are some who have the custom that every day, as part of the, after the prayers, that the 13, the 13, uh, known as the 13 animam, and the 13 principles of faith and belief are recited. It's in, it's in certain sedurim, certain prayer books. It happens to not be in the Chabad prayer book, Nonetheless, although it's not part of, let's say, the prayer liturgy, nonetheless, it is something very special. I want to focus today, as we open up the class with our first text, I want to open today with, uh, with um, a discussion and exploration of number 12. 12 out of thir- the 12th of the 13 principles. The 12th, the, I think it's called the penultimate, not the last, but the second to last. The second to last principle deals with Mashiach, the coming of Mashiach. Now, Mashiach is, of course, the Hebrew word. Uh, in English, we would call it the Messiah. Mashiach either is, could, in Hebrew, could either refer to the person or to the era, to the stage. Either way, Mashiach is a fundamental... One second, Mendel. Please close the door. Mashiach is a fundamental teaching, fundamental belief of Judaism. Let's explore this inside. Um, I'm going to, yep, I have it here ready. I'm going to share my screen with you. If you have the book, you can follow along. And by the way, I mentioned before that you can buy the book for start for next week. I'll send the link in the chat at some point tonight. Okay, sharing screen. Here we go. The PDF is up. You should be able to see it. Let's start off. Um, Ray, are you available to read? Okay, don't forget, Ray, if you can unmute yourself and read text 1A, I'd be very grateful. Here we go. This is principle number 12 of, of 13. Take it away. The 12th principle, we believe and affirm that the Mashiach will come. One should not think he is detained, rather, if he should carry awaken. One who doubts or belittles Mashiach's arrival denies the authority of the Torah, which explicitly promises his arrival. In the story about Balaam and in Deuteronomy 30. All right, so thank you. So, so um, as Ray just mentioned, as Ray just read, Maimonides tells us that Principle number 12 out of 13 is the belief in the coming of Mashiach. And even if it's taking longer than we would like, we shouldn't say, well, it's not happening. <laughs> so we were waiting, and at this point, done, we're, we're finished. No, chas v'sham, God forbid, even if he should tarry, im nonetheless, away for him. And then he says, if you deny Mashiach, it's essentially denying Torah. It's such a fundamental, such a foundational uh, element of Judaism. Okay, now, the way it's described in the Siddur liturgy, I mentioned before that the 13 principles, uh, Maimonides' 13 principles have been also formulated in an animamin, I believe, like from the first person, I believe this, I believe that. So here's the way it's phrased in the Siddur liturgy, which again is not in the Chabad Siddur, but in many other Siddur and many other prayer books. Ray, 
you know what, might as well please read text 1B, that is the twin text of 1A. Take it away, please. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of Mashiach, though he may tarry, I await his coming every day. Perfect, thank you very much. Okay, so it should be very clear here that this principle is all about Mashiach and Mashiach's coming, and even if there's a delay, nonetheless, we have perfect faith that he is indeed on his way. Okay, wonderful. So, I'll ask you a question. I'll ask you a question. Um, based on what my mom said, and this you could just raise your hand. Uh, we'll just do a quick, a quick poll. So, based on what my says, do you believe that the concept of Mashiach is a, is a, a belief of Judaism? Yes, raise hand. Yes, pretty obvious. Yes, okay, good, 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 good. Just testing the waters. Um, does it rise to the level of something that should be called a principle of Judaism, one of the foundations. You understand the difference of the, 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 this new question? Yeah? Do you believe that it's a foundation of Torah? Yeah? Does my, okay, let me ask it differently. Does Maimonides believe that it's a foundation of Judaism? Yes? Yes. Do you believe it's a foundation of Judaism? That's my question. You don't have to answer it, but it's kind of a rhetorical question to get the conversation started. And let me tell you why I'm asking this. You know, when you think about the Torah, there are so many different values and ethos and, and beliefs and teachings in this wonderful living organism called Judaism. You have Torah and you have all of these, so many, so many powerful concepts and ideas. So how do you determine what you call a foundational teaching, right? Let me ask, let me phrase it as a question. This time, please unmute yourself and, and answer. When I say the word foundational, what does that evoke? What does, it, what does it mean that something is not just, it's not just a teaching of Judaism, like the other 612, but even, but moreover, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ikar, it's a foundation. It's a foundational teaching. What is the, what's the difference between a teaching of Judaism and a foundational teaching of Judaism? Donna, go ahead. Everything else rests upon it. Ah. Uh. Ah, when I say, excellent. So when we say foundation or a foundational, a fundamental principle, that, that, that doesn't mean that it's very important. That doesn't just mean that it's true. It means that it's something without which the building collapses. That's what that means. A foundation is not just a part of the structure or a very important part of the structure. The 12th floor is also an important part of the structure. But a foundation is different. Because without a foundation, without a yesod, without a foundation, the entire binyan, the entire building collapses. It's not just a piece. It's a foundational piece. Which is why, for example, I'm going to share with you another principle so you can see what I mean by foundation. Take a look. <laughs> you know what? All right, turns out we just stumbled on the Abarbanel. All right, here we go. Let me share my screen with you. Text number two. Let's, uh, let's read the Abarbanel. Okay, um, Donna, go ahead. You're speaking about foundations and buildings. Take a look at text number two. The title principle, Yisad, is used for a foundation upon which the entire building rests. As in the verse, raise it, raise it to the foundation. So it only makes sense to use the title principle with regard to ideas that serve as the lifeline for other ideas. 
namely an idea without which those other ideas would cease to exist. Thank you. So what the Abarbanel is saying is you can't just throw around the term yesod, foundation. It's not a word to throw around, right? It may be true, it may be important, it may be, you know, big, but foundation means something else. It's not, foundation doesn't mean true, it doesn't mean big, it doesn't mean important, it means foundational. It means something without which other things couldn't exist. Which leads us, oh, before my question, before the question, this So I'll give you an example of another one of the 13 principles that you can understand why it's foundational. In other words, why is is it foundational? Because without it, it doesn't exist. You know what? Let me ask it as a question. What principle do you think in Judaism is so important without which nothing else exists? In other words, give me an idea in Judaism, you know, from from your own head. Give me an idea in Judaism that's so important It's not just really important. It's foundationally important, without which nothing else exists. God is one. God is one. Good. Without that, without without God, without God is one. Right? What else? There is a God. There is a God. Excellent. Ray? Um, Yeah, Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. Okay, good. What else? God is the maker of heavens and earth. Heaven and earth, good. Exodus, okay, okay, good. What else? Torah. Torah, oh, Torah. Without, without, good, good. All, I like all of the above, and I like this last one as well, Torah. And in fact, it's going to be the Torah that I want to highlight here in text number three. And our next text is going to be principle number eight, which speaks to the Torah. Let's, uh... Let's do this together inside text number three. Again, Maimonides. And again, here is one principle. This is principle number eight. Okay, um, let's ask Susan. Susan Robinson, please read text number three. Unmute and please read it for us. Yeah, there you go. We believe that the entire Torah in our possession was given to us by God through Moses, our teacher. Namely, the Torah in its entirety is from God. There is no difference between the verses in the sons of Ham, Wakush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan, and his wife's name was Metubel, and the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mitzahav, and to me... Tinnah was concubine too, and I am God, your Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And here, O Israel, God is our Lord, God is one. For it is all from God, it is all God's perfect Torah, pure, holy, and true. Thank you. This is the way Maimonides himself articulates principle, foundational principle, Yesod number 8 of 13. Right, we read before number 12 about Mashiach. This is number 8. And number 8 is about Torah. And what does he say about Torah? We believe it's a fundamental, foundational belief in Judaism. The entire Torah is divine. It's all divine. It's from God through Moses. It's entirely from God. And he says, 
there's no difference between the seemingly insignificant verses. Like you need to know that uh, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Fut, and Canaan. You need to know that. It's going to change your life. And there's no difference between that verse and Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem Echad. God is one. There's no difference between that and the first of the Ten Commandments. Why? They're all equally divine. Which means, I'm going to just spell this out. We cannot pick and choose and say, well, this part of Torah resonates, so I, I, I'm going to fu- I, I like it. This part doesn't resonate, and therefore, eh, less divine. No, 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 no. The foundation of Judaism, for Judaism to exist and to continue, a foundation of that is the belief and the acceptance of Torah in its entirety as being a divine work. It's divine, all of it, every single verse, and therefore that keeps Judaism going. This is not another idea of Judaism. It's not, it's not just a true idea or an important idea. This is a foundational idea because you take away the divine origin of Torah, so what do you have left? What do you have? An advice book written a few thousand years ago. So why should I care? Why should I care what, uh, what some people came up with? I'll, co- I'll come up with something. Yeah? Right? The whole foundation of Judaism is that the Torah comes from God. So it is, it, that's the foundation. You take away that piece and, and, and there's, no, there's, there's nothing else, that, there's, there's nothing left. What's left? A bunch of rituals, gefilte fish. I mean, what's left? So this is... This is um, an example of another one of the 13 principles where you see that a foundation is a foundation. A yesod is a yesod. It actually supports everything else. Our question, our opening question of this class is, coming back to text 12, sorry, thinking back to principle number 12 about Mashiach, how is that? A foundational principle. How is that a foundation of Judaism, a foundation of Torah? It seems to be something nice. In other words, it seems to be something icing on the cake, right? Judaism says to do this and do that and do the other. And you should know at some point in time, there'll be Mashiach, a Messianic era. It'll be beautiful. It'll be wonderful. That's great. Is that a foundation of Judaism? Sounds like a reward. So, it, it, not saying it's not true, but why is it a foundation? So, I want to be very clear here. My objective of, of this entire piece was to cite principle number 12 and ask a question why is it, why does it rise to the level of being a foundational principle? That's it. We talked about number eight, about the Torah. That was all to give an example of what a foundation looks like. And to therefore ask, 12 does not look like a foundation. Mashiach doesn't seem to be a foundation. It seems to be important. It seems to be true. It seems to be wonderful. It seems to be amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's, but how is it a foundation? So I'm going to stop sharing now. I realize I'm sharing a little bit long here. Question. Is the, does the question make sense? Yes? Yes? We're all on the same page here? Good. To recap, in 10 seconds or less... Principle number 12, Mashiach. Our question is, why is it a principle? That's it. It's true. It's important. 
It's real, it's legit, it's Jewish. But why is it a foundation? Why is it a yesod? By the way, it's not my question. It's not my question. There are great scholars who had the very same question on Rambam, on Maimonides. They, they also were befuddled. Befuddled? Yeah, I think it's a word. They were also very um, confused at Maimonides for putting this as number 12. Mashiach is number 12. So uh, just so you know that we're not alone in our question, let me share my screen with you again. And uh, let's read text number four. This comes from the Hassam Sofer. Let's ask Paul. Paul, please unmute, if you will, and read text four. Take it away. This is from, again, from the Hassam Sofer. And don't forget, I yeah. I cannot accept that believing in Mashiach is a fundamental principle of our faith, as if it's some sort of foundation that if destroyed will cause the entire edifice to fall. No one could say that if, hypothetically speaking, we were to be exiled forever, that gives us license to cast off the authority of heaven or change even the tiniest part of a rabbinic decree. It is not a foundation upon which anything needs to be built. Rather, the foundation of everything is to believe in the Torah, in which the final redemption is stated. As such, one who questions the redemption denies the primary underpinnings of our faith, namely the authority of Scripture. Thank you. So what the Hassam Sofer is asking is, he's basically questioning the Rambam, Maimonides. He says, Maimonides, how are you saying that Mashiach is a fundamental principle? It's a foundation. It's not a foundation. If you take away Mashiach, God forbid. But if you take it, theoretically, if you take it away, say, you know what? It's not going to happen. Again, theoretically. So what would change? We still have Torah. We still have mitzvot. We still have our obligations to God. So what changes? So he says, look, the fact that Mashiach is a thing, it's because it says that in Torah. So because we believe in Torah, so we also believe in the redemption. But all that goes back to is that Torah is the foundation, but not Mashiach. So again, this is our question. He's, our question is this question, right? It's text four. That's our question, right? It's one question. How is this a foundation? Not how do we know it's true? Not why is it true? Not, that's not the question. It's true because Torah says it. Maimonides gave us uh, some chapters before in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, Balaam's prophecy. It's there. It's in Torah. Mashiach is, is a thing. So we're not questioning Mashiach. We're questioning why is it a yesod? Why is it a foundation of Judaism? Because foundation means something that if you remove it, everything else, everything else falls. How does that happen? Yeah, sorry. So if the Torah... Um if the Torah says that there will be a final redemption, um, in my mind, I can't separate final redemption from Mashiach. I mean, uh, I mean can you have a redemption without Mashiach? No, 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 no. That's the, the Chassam Sofer. No, that, yes, you're correct. You are 100% correct. You cannot have a final redemption. Final redemption means Mashiach. But the Chassam Sofer's question is, yeah, Mashiach, final redemption, same thing. That's true because Torah says it, but that doesn't make it a foundation. In other words, is mezuzah mitzvah? Yeah. 100%? 100%. How do we know this? Because Torah says it. 
Is it a foundation of Judaism? No. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mezuzah hating. One second. I'm not hating on mezuzah. I'm not diminishing mezuzah. I'm saying it's not a foundation as defined by the word foundation and by, by the scholars that discuss foundations. Rambam was not giving us all 613 mitzvot. I mean, he does that also. It's called Sefer. He wrote a book called Sefer Mitzvot. So that has all 613. So that's not what he's doing here. He's giving us the 13 ideas of Judaism upon which the entire structure of Judaism stands. And the question that Hassam Sofer asks is, how is Mashiach a foundation? That Mashiach is true, the Torah says. But that Mashiach is a foundation, Rambam says. And Hassam Sofer says, with all due respect, I disagree, it's not a foundation. Why is it a foundation? Take away Mashiach. Let's say we're in Galut, God forbid, indefinitely. What changes? What changes? Again, the definition of foundation is if you remove the foundation, everything falls. Take away Mashiach, what changes? You still have Torah? Yeah. You still have God? Yeah. You still have Mitzvot? Yeah. So what changes? Take away Torah, Judaism falls. Take away God, Judaism falls. Are you with me? That's a foundation. Take away Mashiach, Judaism still exists. So what's so what? Why? How is it a foundation? Question makes sense. It has something to do with um, the purpose for which Hashem created everything. That um, it, it lacks purpose. We might still have the Torah, blah 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 blah, blah but we don't know where we're marching toward. I mean, good, good, good. Hold, hold that thought. Good, hold that thought, and we're going to connect it with the mysterious gathering of Jacob. Hold that thought. We're gonna we're gonna use some of that and and, and build on that. Um, any questions? Other questions or comments so far? Again, just to recap so far, I gave the introduction introduction about the name Vayechi about life. We spoke about Jacob and 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 uh, perpetuating life. We then shifted gears to talk about the thirteen principles of faith, and we focused on number twelve. We're asking why is it a principle? Why is it a foundation? That's where we are so far. Any questions, comments thus far? Yes, Donna. I, I believe that in other denominations in the United States of Judaism, that it's not such a fundamental principle. That's uh, so. Maimonides existed before denominations. <laughs> Maimonides existed when Judaism was just Judaism. So we're tonight. We're going. We're going OG. We're going retro. We're going. You know, original. You know, like. Originally stamped, you know the joke, right? The, the, this time of year, the, um, or whatever, December. So earlier December, the, uh, the woman, a woman walks into the post office. She asks for the Hanukkah, the, the Hanukkah stamps. And the clerk asks, in what denomination? She says, oh, even the, sta- even the stamps have different denominations. Anyway, it was the 25 cent, the 10 cent, the 5 cent. All right. Back to our story. So Maimonides is writing this as a foundational idea of Judaism. Again, this is before the notion of different denominations and, you know, we'll, be, we'll, we'll take this. Not, and I, so we'll have to leave that for another discussion about how Judaism further evolves. But we're, we're, we're focusing now on Maimonides and the way Judaism has been classically understood by, by the sources that we're quoting. So our question is, well, how is it a foundation? 
And to understand this, we're going to look at a very... Oh, um, yeah, I see a hand raised. Hi, hi, Rabbi. I, you know, this, these thoughts keep coming in my head. I'm not sure if it's connected, but I just want to say it tells us who we are and it has to do with hope. Good. I don't know if that fits good. Well, good. I like. I like that. Along the lines of what Sarah was saying about having something to work toward. Good. 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 All right. So, but let's let's develop that and let's see how that how that plays out. So let's now circle back to the Torah portion to the parsha. Jacob's final moments on earth. It's his final days. The Torah says that, the Torah prefaces this story by saying that Jacob was ill, he was sick, and he realized he was going to pass away. And so what he does is he gathers his children, he calls for his children, his 12 sons, to gather around him. And he proceeds, as the Torah describes in great detail, he proceeds to give each one a bracha, each one gets a blessing. Well... I, I use that term a little bit loosely. Each one gets a mention. Some of them are a little bit chastised. If you read it, as we do in Daily Power of Parsha, noon every day we study uh, the, the, the daily reading of Torah. If you, today's reading, we read about Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi, the first three sons, the, the three oldest boys. They weren't, <laughs> it doesn't look like much of a blessing. There's a little bit of a rebuke over there. Reuben, you had it all, and then you lost it. Shimon and Levi, you guys are violent. I mean, that's, that's the nature of his final words to these, to these sons. Nonetheless, he gathers the 12 sons around him and he proceeds to talk to them, to bless them, to rebuke them, to tell them about their futures. There's so much commentary. It's very cryptic. The language is very... There's a lot of, uh, a lot of messaging encoded in, 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 in his words, final words to each of his children. That, that the commentary, there's a lot of commentaries to study. But all of that is preceded by a very enigmatic verse, which we are going to explore right now. So let me share my screen with you. Let's get back inside our text. Text number five, Genesis chapter 49, verses number one and two. Mike Carter, please read this, text five. Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather, and I will tell you what will happen to you at the end of days. Gather and listen, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, thank you. Now, it sounds kind of like, all right, he's gathering them. He's telling them what's going to happen in the future. And he says, listen to me. Listen to your father. I'm about to share. I'm about to share some, about to drop some wisdom on you, drop some prophecy. Okay. You can read it like that. But our sages... Ever, ever, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ever listening or discerning nuance. Our sages notice that he talks twice about gathering. He says gather, and then the next verse says gather. It seems like he was gathering them for one thing, and then he gathered them for a second thing. And that second thing, the second verse leads to the the blessings or the statements to each of the 12 tribes, each of his 12 sons, which means that the first gathering was about something else that seems to have been unresolved. And I know I'm saying this fairly quickly, 
But this is the way our sages understand it. It's in the Medrash, in the Talmud, it's everywhere you look. This is a classic understanding of this verse, that Jacob wished to share a secret with his sons. He was not able to, so he said, if I can't share that secret, well, then let me at least say something to each of my sons before I pass away. Take a look at this verse. I cannot highlight it, just due to the nature of the PDF that I have here. But this first line, Jacob called for his sons and said, listen to this quote, gather, and I will tell you what will happen to you at the end of days. End of days is a reference to Mashiach. Not the end of days after I die and you continue living. Not the end of days, your future generations, what's going to happen in your mishpacha, each of your 12 families. No, no, no. End of days means the end of days. And no, I don't mean some sort of apocalyptic vision of end of days. I mean the end of, you know, the end of exile and the coming of Mashiach. And what this means, according to our sages, is that Jacob wanted to tell his children when Mashiach was going to come. Take a look at text number six. Sarah Carter, please read text number six from the Talmud, Tractate Psachim. Take a look at the Talmudic understanding, the rabbinic understanding of this text. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakich said, the verse states, and Jacob called his sons and said, Gather, and I will tell you what will happen to you at the end of days. Jacob wanted to reveal to his sons when the complete redemption would arrive at the end of days. But the divine presence abandoned him, rendering him unable to prophesy. He said, Perhaps the divine presence has abandoned me because, heaven forfend, one of my descendants is unfit, as was the case with my grandfather. Abraham, from whom Ishmael emerged, and like my father Isaac, from whom Esau emerged. His son said to him, Hear, Israel, our father, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. They said, Just as there is only one God in your heart, so too there is only one in our hearts. At that moment, Jacob, our father, said in praise, Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever. Thank you. And there's so much to unpack in this text. So number one, let's start from the beginning. I'm just going to recap what was stated in this Talmudic text. Number one, what Jacob is wishing, we know what Jacob told his sons, it's printed in the Torah. But what Jacob, that's what he told his sons. But what he wanted to tell his sons, that's hinted to. There's two verses that say that he gathered his children. The second time it continues with what he told them. But the first time it's left hanging. He gathered his children and he says, I want to tell you what's going to happen at the end of the days. Nothing. Then he gathered them and he told them about what's going to happen with them individually. That he did tell them. So the Talmud says, Rabbi Shem Malakish is quoted, Jacob initially, initially wanted to reveal a secret I said at the beginning of the class, this is a secret that's never been revealed, a secret that we don't know to this day, the secret of when Mashiach will come. But at that moment, as he was about to share that with his sons, the divine presence, the prophecy, whoosh, flew away, right out of his head. So what happens is, Jacob begins to worry. 
And he says, perhaps I'm unable to share this message, to share the prophecy, to share the secret of Mashiach's arrival. Perhaps I'm unable to do so because, because one of my sons right around my bed, one of my sons gathered here is unworthy. He's unfit, unworthy of receiving this secret. He began to worry that maybe one of his sons was not righteous. So his son said, no, 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 no. Shema, oh, you know this, word, this verse, but listen. Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. Israel means Jacob. Listen, Jacob, father. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now you and I know this as the Shema, and it's printed in Deuteronomy. But according to our sages, the first time the Shema was recited was Jacob's sons to Jacob on his deathbed. When he was worried that perhaps they weren't worthy. That one of them was flawed. One of them was not kosher. Following his footsteps, they said in unison, Shema Yisrael, listen, Father Israel. Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. We believe in God. Keshem. Let me read. The, let me read it here. Keshem she'ain belibecha le'echad. Kachem belibeno le'echad. Just like in your heart, there's only one. In our heart, there's only one. That's not. It's not. It's not because of us that that you're not able to reveal the secret. We didn't do anything wrong. What does Jacob say in response? We say it every day, twice a day at least. We say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and after that we say Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto LeOlam Vaed. Blessed be the name of His glorious kingdom forever and ever, which essentially is a longer version of Baruch Hashem. Thank God. When Jacob hears his sons reassure him that there they haven't abandoned ship, they're monotheists just like he is. They believe in the same one God as he believes in. Jacob says, Baruch Hashem, thank God for that. And we do this every time we say the Shema. We say the Shema, which is, in this dialogue, what his sons, the 12 sons, said to Jacob. And then we say Baruch Hashem, which is Jacob's reply to his sons. Baruch Hashem, thank God. So, at the end of the story, at the end of this nice, really beautiful Talmudic piece, we have a deeper insight into the Shema and how there's a bit of a dialogue going on, and at least in this origin story of the Shema. We also have a little bit of an unresolved story because Jacob wants to reveal the end of days, the, com- the time of the coming of Mashiach. He's unable to do so. The divine presence flees him. He thinks that perhaps it's one of his sons. Well, they tell him, no. He says, thank God, it's not one of you. But guess what? He still is unable to reveal the end of days. And they still don't know when Mashiach is coming. And to this day, we don't know when it's going to happen. So that leaves me with four questions. It may leave you with four questions. It may leave you with more questions or less. But these are my four questions. Sharing is caring. I'll tell you my questions. Number one, why did Jacob wish to share the secret. Why, why was this something to share? Number two. Question number two. 
if Jacob thought it was a good idea, why did God think it wasn't a good idea? Right? What, why did God disagree? So, again, why did Jacob think it was a good idea? Why did God think it wasn't a good idea? Question number three. There is a phrase that in Judaism that we know. Tzadik goyzer v'hakadosh baruch hu mekayim. A tzadik decrees and God fulfills the decree. This is the power of a tzadik. God says, tzadik says it, I'm on board. So if a tzadik, Yaakov, Jacob, if a tzadik wishes to reveal this, so how come God didn't acquiesce? If that's, if that's typically the way it is, tzadik decrees and God, God allows it to happen, so why in this case did God override the system, if you will, and prevent it from happening? That's the third question. The fourth question is, why do we need to know about it if it didn't happen anyway? Are you with me? The Torah tells us this, the Talmud tells us this, just to know, yeah, it didn't happen. Wow. That's, I mean, that's like a whole thing. And what's the takeaway? Yeah, nothing. Nothing. No secret. Nothing. No information. You could have just left the whole thing out. And, and we would have had the same information we have now. In other words, we still don't know when is coming. So why the whole, why, why is this verse included? And, and the Talmud explains what it means and the secret and the story. Why is it relevant? Now, you know we like asking that question. Because Torah means hurrah. Torah means instruction. Torah is a life manual. Torah is not an interesting book. Torah is a life manual. If it's in the manual, it's meant for, for us to help us operate the machine called the human being and the machine in, in, in this environment called life. So how is this, how is this relevant to us living our lives today in almost 2021, 57 81. What's the message, the practical message? I'm going to recap my four questions. Question number one, what was Jacob thinking? Question two, what was God thinking? Question three, how come God didn't listen to Jacob? Because that's kind of how it works usually with Tzadikim. And question number four is, why are we being pulled into this, <laughs> this story that ends nowhere? What's the point? What's the lesson? Are you with me in the four questions? Yes? Sounds like Passover. All right. Don't worry. No one has to read the Manashtana. All right, let's get some answers. So number one, the Rebbe explains. The Rebbe explains that if, if the fact is that Jacob wished to reveal something to his children, the fact is that it must have had an effect. If a tzaddik, as I said before, a tzaddik decrees, God, God um, acquiesces, even in this case, something happened. I'm going to share my screen with you. I'm going to read it inside. I will be reading the text from here on out in the interest of time. Text number seven. From the fact that the Torah records Jacob's words gather, and I will tell you, we are compelled to conclude that it had some sort of material effect, so much so that it's part of the eternal Torah. If this would not be the case, the Torah would not have recorded for all Jews such an irrelevant thing. Regardless, we are compelled to say so, for we know that a tzaddik's request does not ever come back empty-handed. Based on my question number three and four, the Rebbe concludes that something must have happened. The fact that it's, question four, the fact that it's in Torah means that something happened, there's a lesson for us. The fact that a tzaddik said or wished to say must have had an effect. Something happened, the question is, what? If we didn't get a date, if we didn't get an ETA of Mashiach's arrival, and that's what Jacob wanted to share, so what happened? What changed? 
Let's talk about Mashiach. What is Mashiach in the first place? In other words, to understand all of this about Mashiach, both with Jacob and remember Maimonides with the 12, principle number 12? You remember it, right? To understand all of these questions, we need to understand what is Mashiach. Mashiach is not lollipops growing on trees with all apologies to what we tell the five-year-olds. It's not candy growing on trees. That's what we tell kids. Some people tell kids. What's Mashiach? Mashiach is something way beyond that. Mashiach is a paradigm shift. Take a look at Maimonides once again from his Mishnah Torah, text number eight in that era, the Messianic era, there will be neither famine nor war, envy nor competition, for good will flow in abundance and all the delights will be freely available as dust, even the lollipops on the trees. The occupation of the entire world will be solely to know God. That last line is the primary line. There won't be famine, there won't be war, there won't be envy, there won't be competition. You know why? Why will good flow in abundance? Why is that the case? Because everybody is going to be plugged into the source. All of the fighting and all of the hatred and all of the lack of love, all of that happens when we unplug from the truth, when we unplug from the source, when we plug into the truth, when we plug into the source, everything changes. Everything changes. Ah, we continue. Therefore, Maimonides says, the Jews will be great sages and know the hidden matters, grasping the knowledge of their creator according to the full extent of human potential. In other words, what is Mashiach? What does it look like? It looks like people who are studying and exploring and plugging into and connecting with God. That's what Mashiach is. And because of that, as a natural outcome of that, as a natural outcome of this spiritual enlightenment, of the spiritual illumination, of the spiritual connection, we're not going to be killing each other. We're not going to be jealous of each other. We're not going to be withholding blessings from each other. We're going to be sharing the blessings. Yeah, that's going to happen. As a natural outcome of the spiritual connection. So when is Mashiach, when is this going to happen? So when? The Talmud says, text number 9. Rabbi Alexandri says, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi raised a contradiction. In the verse, I, God, in its time I will hasten it, it is written, so there's a verse that says, okay, look at the brackets. The verse says, I, God, in its time, is referring to Mashiach. When is Mashiach going to come? God says, I, I will bring it in its time, and I will hasten it. So the Talmud, the Talmud asks, there's a contradiction. It's written in its time, indicating that there's a designated time for the redemption. And it's written, I will hasten it, indicating that there's no set time for redemption. In other words, is there a set time, or could it come sooner? Like, the verse says, I, God, will bring Mashiach in its time, I will hasten it. Make up your mind, hello, is there a, a date, or is it up for uh, negotiation? Here's the answer. Rabbi Alexandria explains, if they are worthy, they meaning we, if we are worthy, God says, I will, well, God speaking, I guess. If the people are worthy, God says, I will hasten the coming of Mashiach. If they're not worthy, Mashiach will come in its designated time, which means that there is a date that by that time, it has to happen at that date, but there's an option to make it sooner. Right? If we're worthy, then we can bring Mashiach sooner. When I ask you a question, what does it mean if we're worthy? <laughs> what does that mean? Like, if we're worthy, in what, by what metric? And if we do enough mitzvot, like if we have, you know, if we 
cross over the line of, of, of um, number of mitzvot, this master tally of mitzvot of all time, and we break the, we, we, um, we hit the number, some sort of number, then we become worthy, then we bring Mashiach sooner. If not, well, it's going to come anyway. Is that what it means? I'll give you a deeper explanation. Worthy means it's not a magical, it's not a magical number. Or, you know, you hit this number, it's going to come. No. What worthy means is, if we're living Mashiach, then we'll have Mashiach. In other words, Mashiach is a paradigm shift. It's about spiritual, it's about spiritual connection. It's about sharing and loving and, and kindness. And it's about being a mensch and about being connected spiritually. You know what it means if we're worthy, it's going to come sooner. If you're living Mashiach, if you're living on the level of Mashiach, if we all lived, not in a yellow submarine, but if we all lived connected with Hashem, if we were studying Torah and we're connected and we're acting like a mensch and we're treating our friends and our neighbors and our communities and our world the way they needed to be treated, the way we need to treat each other, right? If we're living that, Mashiach comes sooner because that's what we have. We have what we have. If we're dragging our feet, well, it's going to come anyway. But it's going to happen at that time that it needs to happen, not at the earliest possible time that it could happen. So the meaning, according to the way we understand it, the meaning of if, if we're worthy, we can get it sooner, it doesn't, it's no magical formula. It's practical. If you're living with Mashiach, then it's going to happen sooner. So here's the question. And this rhetorical question answers all the questions. What gets you and I to live like Mashiach is here? What motivates you and I to live like Mashiach is here? There's one answer. Knowing, knowing that Mashiach is imminent. Knowing that Mashiach is a real thing. Knowing that Mashiach is is imminently coming, is, is a thing that inspires us to live it now. If we knew that it's coming, who knows when? All right. But if we know that it's imminent and we can live it right now and bring Mashiach, then that inspires us. Jacob, let's talk about Jacob. Jacob wanted to inspire his children, to inspire all of us by sharing the time of Mashiach which means more than a specific date, it means the idea that you and I can bring Mashiach now. By living Mashiach, you and I can bring Mashiach. Because that's what it is, right? It's living Messianic, living Mashiach, is living with Mashiach. That's what Jacob wanted to accomplish. God didn't want, to tell, God didn't want him to share a specific date, but it's still told in Torah, which tells us that we still have a, we still have the ability to bring Mashiach with our actions. Bring Mashiach with our actions, emulating that type of experience of Mashiach. Because after all, if we're living with it, that certainly helps us realize it that much sooner. That's what Jacob wished to accomplish. And on some level, on a very strong level, that was accomplished. The fact that it's told in Torah, the fact that we're studying this, the fact that we're exploring this very topic means that we did get the message. Message is that we can bring it. Message is that we can make it happen. It's not just a date that Jacob was withheld from sharing. It's the fact that you and I can live 
on a, a level of Mashiach living, connected and plugged in spiritually and living a menshi life, that can bring Mashiach and that is Mashiach. That secret is out. So maybe not the date, but the concept and the theme behind it is revealed. And this is why Jacob wanted to make sure to share this idea before he passed away. And this is why it's a foundational teaching according to Rambam. Yes, the Chassam Sofer questioned it, but to defend and explain Rambam, we can say, and as Sarah said before, that it's not just knowing something in the future. Yeah, you know, in the future, Mashiach is going to come. But either way, we still have our obligations. No, 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 no. Knowing about Mashiach radically changes our experience now. Because it's not just about doing Torah and mitzvot. It's about living in a different way, radically different way, than we would live otherwise. If you and I know that our actions today, how we live our life, not just did we wrap tefillin, did we light Shabbat candles, but how we live our life, how we see the world. If we knew that the way we looked at the world, the way we lived our life, radically affects the entirety of the world and brings Mashiach, if we knew that, we would live different lives. And so this is why it's a foundation. It's not just that Mashiach will come, and that's nice to know, yeah, it's a future reward. No, no, no. It affects the way we act now. And the way we act now affects that future time and brings it ever closer. I want to share with you one final text. One final text that really captures the Hasidic approach to this. Take a look. Take a look at, at how the Rebbe explains it, text number 13. It's readily apparent. In other words, it's obvious. When a Jew really appreciates, when we really get that their religious observance actually hastens Mashiach's arrival and the rebuilding of the temple, when a Jew really gets that his or her actions literally bring the entire world to its very purpose, namely the mission statement of creating a home for God, then their religious observance is suffused with an entirely different energy, with so much more passion and meticulousness. And these very efforts hasten the final redemption for all Jews. Namely, the redemption arrives immediately. In other words, it's not just icing on the cake. It's not just, oh, interesting, interesting. We believe in some sort of future redemption, future reward. No, 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 no. Knowing about Mashiach radically transforms the present. And the present being radically transforms brings Mashiach and hastens Mashiach's coming that much sooner. So it's a, it's a cycle that feeds itself, but one thing is for sure that it's a dynamic cycle and not a static thing. This is why, it's number, this is why Jacob wanted to, and in some way did reveal this to his children, to us, to all of us through Torah, and this is why Maimonides writes this as principle number 12 of Judaism, because Judaism without Mashiach looks radically different. Take a look at one more text. I said one more, but you know what? I'm going to do one, one more on top of the one more. To give a metaphor, imagine that a soldier in the middle of a war would get up and say, I'm not interested in finding out why we're being told to shoot. All I know is that I must follow orders. 
Think about such a soldier, one who doesn't know that his efforts actually repel the enemy and contribute to victory. It's obvious that though he may follow orders to a T, he will lack a certain morale, and you can bet that at some point it will impact his performance. Eventually, he won't fight as he should. That's if you don't know why. The same is true with our mission as a Jew to follow the Torah. A Jew simply cannot say that they don't care to know how or why their efforts bring about the much hope for victory. A Jew absolutely must know that there is indeed a war at stake, a battle between the forces of good and evil, and it is our job to win this war. A Jew must know that every additional mitzvah they do introduces more godly energy into this world and brings us closer to victory. What's more, a Jew must be confident that ultimately we will win. After all, the victory is the very purpose of creation. It's impossible for that goal not to be realized. A day later, a day earlier, eventually good will prevail. This very knowledge inspires and energizes a Jew to muster even more determination. The previous Rebbe stated that when soldiers go out to war, they must come out of the gate with a victory march. From the outset, a soldier must go with the mindset that victory is his. When he does, he fights with added vigor and dedication. And thus, believing a Mashiach, Getting back to our original question with Maimonides, believing in Mashiach is fundamental to our faith. It's not icing on the cake. It's not cherry on top. It's, it's a ikr and yesod. It's a foundation. A Jew must know that at the end of the day, the Jewish people are going to win this war. Not just we are destined to self-determination and freedom to serve God, but much more, but so much more that Mashiach will in fact steer the entire world to serve God, bringing about the absolute and eternal rule of God. And that is ultimately... Ultimately, what Mashiach is about, it's about recognizing that the world will be fundamentally transformed for good. For good, right? Not for temporary, but for good, for good. And that our actions today do that. You can't separate out Mashiach from the current, the current avodah, the current uh, work that we do. Because if you take out Mashiach, yeah, eliminate principle number 12. Eliminate it. Take it out. Then what does Yiddishkeit look like? What does Judaism look like? It's hollow. It's, it, it, it's being engaged in battle and not knowing why or what or when, not believing that it's going to do anything. It's a futile experience. It feels empty. It feels meaningless. And it doesn't, it doesn't stir us, motivate us to live that Mashiach type of life that ultimately will bring it that much closer. I love the fact that he says over here, he quotes the previous Rebbe about soldiers going out to war with a victory march. The Rebbe spoke about this many times. And the Rebbe said, the Rebbe adopted as the unofficial Chabad victory march, Napoleon's march. Napoleon's march, right? The Rebbe, was, the Rebbe spent time in France. And uh, the, Rebbe was, uh, the Rebbe transformed a lot of... Transformed. The Rebbe adopted a lot of French stuff into, into Judaism, into Chabad. Sandrine is thumbs upping. I like that. So Napoleon's March, I believe Napoleon's March goes, Is that Napoleon's March or is that the other one? Is that the national anthem? Did I get it wrong? That's the March It's the national anthem. So I got the wrong one. So Napoleon's March is? Hold on. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
You never knew Napoleon sang like a chassid. And it keeps on going. If, if you've heard that before, it's probably because you've been to our service on Yom Kippur. And right before we, find, we sound the, fi the final shofar blast, after 25, 26 hours of fasting, Right? And everyone in every other synagogue around the world, everyone's rushing to sound the shofar and break out the bagels. You go to a Chabad shul, and what do they do? In middle of Kaddish, in middle of Kaddish, you sound the shofar. In middle of Kaddish, right before the shofar blast, everyone's been fasting. You do the victory march and you keep on going and you go and you go. It's only out of, honestly, out of Rachmanus that we eventually stop it and sound the shofar to let everybody eat. But really, it should go on the whole year. Why? Because when we have the victory march, when we're confident, when we know what we're fighting for, when we know what the purpose is, we know what the destination is, and we're confident that we're going to get there. You know what happens? Everything changes. Not just when it happens, it happens. Are you kidding me? This right now changes. That's why Mashiach is the foundation of Judaism right now. The foundation of mezuzah is Mashiach. The foundation of tefillin is Mashiach. The foundation of kosher is Mashiach. The foundation of Shabbos candles is Mashiach. The foundation of Yom Kippur is Mashiach. You know why? Because without Mashiach, nothing looks the way it looks. Nothing, everything lacks life, lacks purpose, lacks Mashiach. And so in the final analysis, this is why Maimonides includes it in the 13 principles of faith. It is a foundation. This is why Jacob wished to share the time of the end of days with his children to inspire them that every moment of their lives, it should be meaningful, it should be impactful, it should be, this is a Mashiach moment right now to live plugged in and to live like a mensch, both physically, literally, and both spiritually as well. So although he wasn't able to share the date, he shared the theme and the theme we live with today. So as we conclude the book of Bereshis, as we conclude the book of Genesis, Traditionally, in shuls around the world, as we conclude it, we'll sing Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazek, Be strong, be strong, and be strengthened. And that reminds us that although we conclude and we close the book, the book is only closed from the outside, but the book lives on within us. The stories of Genesis live on within us. This, this final story certainly lives on with us. The message of living Mashiach, living with Mashiach in this moment, living a life of purpose, of meaning, of transcendence and, and transformation. And when we do so, the world indeed will be Mashiach. And it won't be something that comes as a surprise. It will come as a natural evolution. When we lived in a way that's plugged in, that's the world we will have. There's a, a proverb that says, be the change that you want to see or something like that. And it applies very much to tonight's theme. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies as we conclude the Book of Horatius. 
I look forward to seeing you next week as we begin the book of Exodus. I hope you enjoyed tonight and found it inspirational. And uh, may God bless us with a happy and healthy end of 2020 and, a, and a, a very strong and healthy and happy beginning of 2021. And uh, may the blessings only increase and may all of the difficulties come to an end. And may we only have good fortune and good blessing, health and opportunities to share in simchas with each other and happy occasions. And uh, may we all be there for each other and be able to celebrate in each other's joys. And let us say, Amen. All right. Um, I promised a few times a link. I promised a few times a link to, um, to the Torah Studies book. And I intend on delivering on my promise. And so without further, without further ado, I'm going to put in the chat the link. On Amazon, you can order it. Let me see how long it's going to take. It looks like, oh, if you order now, free delivery by Monday, January, I have Prime, free delivery by Monday, January 4th. Look at that. You'll get it even before next week, before next Wednesday. Um, yeah, 17 bucks. Look, I share the text on the screen so you can always get it that way. But if you want a safer in your home, if you want the book to hold and to read and to study in between, we don't usually do all the text you know, due to interest of time and other things. If you want the book, that's the way to get it. Highly recommended. Um, all right, good. What else is going on? I think that's pretty much it. That's all the news for the print. I'll stay on for the next little bit. If you want to ask a question, just unmute and jump in. Um, I will mention that for the rest of the week, so tomorrow we have Daily Power Parsha, Friday also as well, I believe. Tomorrow night, Tanya, I believe, is going to be... Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm muting you for just a second because it's creating a little bit too much noise um, until we take questions. So tomorrow night, Tanya, we are going to postpone. We'll be back, please God, next week. Pay attention to the emails. There's a lot of incredible things that are happening, really incredible things that are happening. Um, in January, we are... The engines are revving for another incredible month of, of Torah study and inspiration. So please look out for that. I want to also thank all of those that have participated throughout this month and throughout all the other months in our end of year campaign uh, to help keep us going. It's greatly appreciated and uh, everything is going straight back to the community to prov continue providing Torah and, um, and inspiration. All right. Questions, comments, let's uh, jump in. Chana, go ahead. Richard? No, I see Chana Bat Alter has a, has a hand up. No. Okay. Richard, go, it's your cue. Is it, is it too much to say then that, uh, is, it, is it outrageous to say that Torah is a means to an end, and not an end in itself. Is that outrageous that to say? Torah is? Pardon? That what is, sorry? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is it outrageous to say that Torah is a means to an end rather than an end in itself? What is the end? What is the end? Well, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying if the end is the Mashiach. So, so then the, 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 the Torah is only a vehicle to get there rather than self-contained without the need 
for it's a great question you're asking. I, w- I would say like this. Which means depends, uh, depends on your perspective. Right? It depends. So on the one hand, a mitzvah is a mitzvah. Right? So self-contained, every mitzvah is infinite and infinitely valuable. So on one level, there's nothing outside of that. On a second level, if you do a mitzvah with a Mashiach perspective, so then that is the end. In other words, it's Mashiach and the mitzvah and it's combined. On another level, you could say, yeah, the mitzvah is a tool to get to some other time. But I think we're working today in this class on integrating. It's not perspective one, it's not perspective three, it's perspective two that I share. That the end impacts the present and the mitzvah experience is transformed to not being an end, not being a means to an end, but the end is realized right here. That was this moment is Mashiach in this moment. So that's, that's how I would phrase it, but it's a good question. And in truth, depends on the, depending on the experience, it could be experienced in, in slightly different ways. So your mileage may vary, but the goal is to integrate, to integrate the two. One thing, did you say that the occupation of the domestic area is, is, is to, uh, to know God, is that what you said? Yeah. That's what Rambam says, yeah. He says the occupation, yeah, he says the occupation of the whole world will be to know God, which is pretty cool. Which is pretty cool. See, you and I were getting a head start. See that? We're gonna have like we're gonna have a lot of training under our belts. We'll study we've studied Kabbalah, Torah, all this stuff. We'll be like, yeah, 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 we got it, we got it. Whatever. I mean, no, it's not a, it's not a boasting thing. It's just a real thing. It's like everyone's gonna have to go to basic training. So we'll go to like two hundred one already or three hundred one. We'll be like, you know, like we got this. Let's go, new. Bring on the wisdom. Bring on the. Let's go. Because doing advanced placement classes. That's right, advanced classes. Mom, you had a you wanted to ask or yeah, or, or mention. In summary, this this whole thing that Yaakov was he couldn't give a he couldn't give a timetable, but he had a blueprint. Right. Excellent. Right. Very good way of putting it. Right. Yeah. So there's not a timetable. But it's the blueprint. It's it's how to it's how to do this. How to make it happen, right? Yeah. The truth is, the truth is, it's probably better than getting the timetable because anyway, the timetable is not a solid timetable. So what we need to know the one date that's like the the def- like the the um date. yeah. It's like if all else fails, then by this point, like, we don't even want that date. But I'll t- I think it's more of. I think it's more, it's kind of like the fact that he wanted to share it yes. means that he was living with Mashiach even the last day of his life. It was on his mind, it was on his tongue, it was, he, want, he was living with it, he wanted his children to live with it, and so that's it. So, that, so now we have our marching orders, so that's it. So, so he actually was giving them a blueprint. Right, Exactly. Yeah. By, by, trying, by trying to share a timetable, he was giving them a part of the blueprint. Right. So that's integration. Yes. So there you go, Ari. There you go. You did it. I, Jacob did it. I didn't, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I'm just reporting it. You brought it out. I'm, I'm, working, I'm working on it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have to say that. I know, I know. Uh, number one fan. <laughs> um, questions, comments?
All right, good. Listen, happy and healthy. Oh, sorry, Hannah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't know how I couldn't find the unmute thing. No worries. I have a, uh, I'm, I have a, like a what if question because what if you took the, the sentence or the phrase, the end of days, to mean that time as we know it will not be necessary? And uh, because we, you know, in, with time, things happen in sequence. And may, and since when Mashiach comes, a lot of what we know metaphysically is going to be different. Maybe it means, you know, maybe we won't need to have time as we know it at that, at that time. I, I like what you're saying, but it's way too deep for me on a Wednesday night. I mean, that's like, you're going like, I mean, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I like that idea. We once taught a class on the Kabbalah of time, and oh boy, this, this is reminiscent of that. I mean, time, like, what is time? We could ask that question, like, what is time anyway? Is time real? Is it imagined? Is it something that's um, part of the fabric of, of the universe, or is it something that human beings have come up with to help us, you know, I'll meet you um, at 4.30, have your reservation, don't you know? Oh, no, you guys know that song? Right? Oh, sorry, Dr. Maxi. Sorry, this is... All right, anyway. Um, yes. That, that's is... All right, anyway, so... I, I want to tell you, Einstein discusses this. Okay, so here's the thing. It's, it's in Kabbalah, it's in Einstein. You're asking a good question. Does end of time mean that time as we know it ends? It's possible. I'm going to give you a solid possible. And then beyond that, it would take another, a very long, elaborate conversation and a lot of research to, to answer that question. So... Let's, uh, let's, let's hold, yeah, let's hold that as a, as a, as a definite possibility. I, I'd like to think that that could be a thing. It would be very cool. All right. I think, uh, I think I'm looking around. All right. We'll say, we'll say Lila Tov. Have a good night. Nice. Um, thank you. Thank you. We'll see you. Thank you, Susan. We'll see you, everybody. Um, we'll have a good, Lila Tov, have a good night. We'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye, y'all.